Welcome to Cheers, Dears. I'm S. Faxon, and in each episode, I'll be interviewing authors about what makes their books unique, all while sipping their signature drinks, the beverages they recommend we enjoy while reading their works, and one they enjoyed while writing them. So get comfortable, pour yourself your favorite drink, and get ready to Cheers, Dears. Happy New Year! Hope the year has been treating you well so far and really looking forward to what this new year will bring. These next two episodes are going to be a little different. A lot of New Year's resolutions include, this year I'm going to finish writing that book. So here are some very important tips and guides and ideas for writing inspirations that writers at any stage may find helpful. We're featuring clips from my interviews with the author of the Raleigh Waters series, Corey Lynn Feyman. Yes, that's Bella meowing in the background. Children's book author, Sherry Kukla. Children's book and adult fantasy sci-fi horror author, Henry Hertz. And contemporary thriller author, Lisa Brackman. We're starting this episode off with award-winning author, Henry Hertz, about dealing with rejections, which are inevitable, building confidence with drabbles, and how to manage multiple submissions at once. I Am Smoke sounds amazing. Well, I hope, I hope everybody agrees, but <laughs> you never know. Every, when you're a writer, you think it's great, and then, then reality hits, you've got to sell it to an editor, and then the, the publisher has to sell it to the public, and you just, it, it's impossible to predict. It's incredible what a subjective art it is and um, how there's so many different trends that influence everything. And um, it's, it's kind of an exciting challenge. And um, one of the biggest pieces of advice that I've learned so far um, is that, you know, even if you get rejected, don't let that break all of your chances or break you as an author because rejections are going to happen and it's okay to be rejected as long as you just keep going, keep writing, and don't stop at your craft. Right. It's not even if you get rejected. It's when you get rejected over and over right. and over again. Even the big names uh, get rejected. Um, J.K. Rowling got rejected a bunch of times before she sold The Hunger Games. <laughs> which she then retitled Harry Potter. Oh, that um, was it. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, I'm Facebook friends with um, Laura Numeroff, who wrote If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, you know, wildly successful picture book. She posted the other day on Facebook um, a photo of, her, of a rejection letter from a early, an early rejection letter from a publisher for If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, saying they didn't think it was marketable. You know? <laughs> so wow. it's not like they were, you know, they weren't being malicious. It's it's often hard to tell sometimes really good books just don't do well and nobody has a crystal ball. So um, every author, Jane Yolen gets rejected, the Dean of American Kidlet, everybody gets rejected. Yeah, exactly what you said. You just got to keep going, keep writing, write, submit, repeat. Don't wait, just keep. So I've also been writing adult short stories because I wanted to stretch myself. So I've written picture books and I've written chapter books, which is the next age group up. The next one after that is middle grade. I have a manuscript out on submission to agents. I haven't hooked an agent for that yet, but I'm hopeful. And part of learning how to write for older audiences, I thought it would be fun to 
it's it's learning to write for older audiences, but it's also giving myself permission to use my full vocabulary because when you're writing picture books, you, you're really constrained. And sometimes you just want to let it rip. So uh, I started writing short stories for adults and I've, I've sold a few of them to uh, online magazines or print magazines. So uh, I'm excited about that too. Yeah, so. I saw you recently published with um, Erie, Erie Publications, one of your short stories. Erie River bought us, yeah. Uh, I, I discovered there's something called Drabbles, which is a hundred word microfiction. Mm. So since I was getting started with adults, seems like that's a perfect way to start. hundred words shouldn't take very long. And so that's how I got my start. And now I've been writing true short stories, you know, anywhere from a thousand to 7,000 words um, for adult markets. I've sold um, four short stories to children's markets like Highlights for Children and, and um, Ladybug Magazine, but those tend to be much shorter, like 750 words. The adult markets, um, either anthologies or print anthologies or online magazines, um, those can be anywhere from like a, a thousand to 7,000 words. I really like the drabbles. I think that those are such good practice um, for storytelling. I mean, you know, it's one thing to write a hundred thousand word novel. It's another thing to get your entire story out in such a short frame. And, you know, I, I think that those are just great practice for writing and just, you know, if you don't have the next big story in you to just sit down, find a little prompt or a prompt that's short and just try to get those out just to keep that craft sharp and to keep honing your skills as you go. I would say with a hundred words, there's only so much you, I mean, picture books are incredibly sparse at 500 words for a fictional picture book. 100 words, I would, I would say, I would characterize it slightly differently. I would say it's not so much a story as a scene. Mm. It's just only so much you can do with a hundred words, but it's good practice. And honestly, when I, that's how I got my start writing for adults. I just, some of it's just confidence building, you know, it's like, okay, I'm right. just going to do something clever and at least I think it's clever and I'm going to see if somebody <laughs> will be interested in it. And I built up my confidence selling a bunch of drabbles and I say, like, okay, now I'm ready to start doing the longer short stories, you know, true short stories instead of drabbles. So, I mean, you got to use whatever works for you. I mean, that was actually the reason I, I had two reasons for starting my children's writing at, with picture books. One was, they're short, 500 words. So I figured I could climb the learning curve a lot faster than if I was going to write a young adult novel of 90,000 words. It's going to take, you know, months to a year to write it. And then I need, how long is it going to take to have some friends critique it and stay forever? Whereas with picture books, it just goes a lot faster. And I use that to hone my writing skills. But writing picture books and writing novels are two very different animals. And so I'm discovering that. So I'm using writing shorts stories as a way to hone my novel writing skills because you still need the full three-act arc, you know, mm -hmm. 5,000 word short story that you would need in a 40,000 word middle grade novel. So it's been good training for me and it's gratifying whenever you sell one. You don't make a lot of money, but it's gratifying to get it accepted by a, you know, a significant is not the right word, um, respected market. And then, you know, so there's plenty of markets that keep saying no, but I just say, okay, fine. You send it to somebody else. That's a big difference between short story submission and, and book manuscript submission with 
traditional publishers, you can submit simultaneously to as many publishers as you want, subject to the fact that not every publisher will accept an unagented manuscript. With short stories, many of the markets say, we don't want it simultaneous submissions. If you're gonna to send to us, you have to wait till we give you an answer before you send it to somebody else. They're not all like that, but some of them are. So uh, it, it can slow you down a little bit. And I have this big complicated spreadsheet where I keep track of my submissions so I know, okay, this one declined. Okay, who, get, who gets it next? And just kind of, it's like three-dimensional chess trying to figure out, because some of them have only open periods so long. Yeah. And do I send it to them because do I send it to this other one? Because if I don't hear back in time, I won't be able to get it to this other market before they close. So it's like, it takes a ridiculous amount of strategery to, uh, to plan my magazine and anthology submissions, but it's part of the game. Henry's advice about staying organized and just staying with it are so true and so important. So as you're looking to start submitting this year, be sure to keep those ideas in mind. Our next clip here is from award-winning author Corey Lynn Feynman, and he's going to be talking all about drawing inspiration for your writing from real life. Now, Corey, you're a San Diego native? I am. There's not very many of us. I don't know what happens. <laughs> no, no, like and there's certainly not many disappear. my age because they, you know, <laughs> we were a much smaller town when I was born. <laughs> it's so funny. You know, I always say that San Diego is the biggest small town there is. Uh, yeah. Corey and I discovered in the course of our emails together that we are, we have probably crossed paths multiple times without even realizing it. I mean, San yeah. Diego is just such a wonderful small town feel to it, even though it is a decently sized city. Right. Now, multiple questions came through on the re book review and quite a few of them had to do with your San Diego connection. So, uh, Jen R. and Amanda P., first of all, thank you guys for writing in. You both wanted to know if Corey was a San Diego native, so I guess we checked that one right off the box. And we also had a bunch of questions, also from Jen R. and Corey with a K., who wanted to know if the murders or the events in your book were inspired by events in town. Uh, that's a good one. I often do use things kind of from San Diego history. I usually fictionalize them and change them a little bit just so they'll fit the story. Um, there isn't, this one is mostly fictional though there's a character in it, uh, Butch Fleetwood, who I actually based on a famous surfer from the 50s or 60s, 50s and 60s I think, his name was Butch Van Arsdale, Artsdale. And um, he actually drowned I mean, he disappeared. He was out uh, surfing one day. Everybody saw him surfing, and he crashed and never showed up again. Wow. You know, he wiped out and never showed up again. And that's, it was his kind of character that was in my head. I think the, the character turned out to be a bit different, but that's where it started. Um, and then, of course, I had a lot of personal history in Ocean Beach uh, and some in, some in Point Loma. Um, so that, that was brought into it too, but I think that was the most kind of biggest bit of San Diego history that's in there that people might not, might not guess. Mm. You know, it's funny cause OB has so much character to it. 
I mean, you can't drive a block and not find, you know, so much inspiration from it. I mean, from, you know, the bright green taco shops all the way down to the surfer statue that's down there, you know, there's just so much history there. I mean, there's the OB Pier, there's the, um, I can't remember the name of the theme park that used to be there, but the imprint of what used to be basically a fair side attraction right there off the beach, right off Sunset Cliffs. It's such a rich neighborhood and it feels like it's been encapsulated in time. And, you know, it's one of those neighborhoods you hope never <laughs> changes. Right, absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's, it's one of the most distinctive places in San Diego with the, and, and you know, personality to spare. Yeah. <laughs> Not always personality you wanna deal with, but still personality to spare. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the great tourist destination, but keep it to the locals. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So um, continuing with some of our other uh, questions that we had here, Jennifer G would like to know if Raleigh was inspired or your private detective was inspired by a real person. And we kind of touched on that, but were there any bits and pieces of Guy Noirs or anyone like that that inspired? Well, there, you know, there are bits and pieces of, of he's a, he's a, conglomeration of several guitar players I knew, <laughs> and, and mostly ones that played in my band. Um, you know, we had, one, was, one was rather, he was, a, all, all the ones I thought about were, were good guys, I liked them, but they had very distinctive personalities. Hmm. And this one had a very lively, get out there personality and loved everybody and everybody loved him, including all the girls. And uh, this is him 20 years later, was, was what was in my head with, with that. Um, he wasn't as cool as, as Raleigh is now. Mm. Um, and that comes from Raleigh, that coolness Raleigh has really comes from my dealings with a lot of musicians, especially if they've been at it a while. Mm -hmm. You develop this kind of, you know, low key dealing with it personality that, that you joke a lot to get kind of through things. You make smart remarks, you, you know, and there's this kind of, we're in this together. Let's not deal with all these crazy people out here. So I think yeah. that's part of where his personality comes from, too. Yeah. He was almost designed to become this private detective. Yeah. It is sense based on, you know, that background. I mean, there's so many scenes where I think most people in the situations you put him in would be a little bit more panicked or a little bit more concerned. And he's just cracking jokes. And I loved that. <laughs> it was such it was such a good comic relief but then it also drove the villains insane as yeah. well because they were realizing that they couldn't get to him right and it's it's his only defense really he doesn't carry a gun he's not you know he i think i had him get in a fight once in one of the books and he doesn't do well um <laughs> you know and that's just not his thing so it's his only way of getting around things is to make jokes or you know divert their attention with remarks or something like that uh, disarm them in a way and, and some people that disarm some people do just get mad at it <laughs> <laughs> i absolutely love Corey's idea of using real life for inspiration so if ever you find yourself hitting that writer's block wall take a look around you and start asking the question hmm what if great way to get your creative mind rolling our next segment is with New York Times bestselling author Lisa Brackman, and we're talking about what happens when your book becomes orphaned, so when your publisher uh, closes or discontinues, 
and the importance of doing research into your publication journey. For some reason, and I don't think anybody really understands why, Llewellyn decided to shutter Midnight Inc. And it's, mm. it, it, speaking of mysteries, it was a mystery because they had a ton of books, a lot of authors, you know, um, a, a fair amount of success. It didn't seem to be for any financial reason. I don't know whether the cards came up, you know, sell this or magic eight ball said sell the you know shutter this i i don't know so basically it orphaned a lot of of authors um and uh they were going to maintain the catalog but not publish any new books and so my feeling about it was it was the only book i had with midnight inc all my other books with a publisher called soho um which is a very good publisher very solid and you know they keep your books they, 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 they will continue to promote your book cyclically um, for as long as the company goes on. So I felt good with having my first five books at this publisher. But I did not want this book to be at, at, at orphaned, you know, um, in, a, in a company that didn't really exist anymore. So mm-hmm. we started pretty early on saying, hey, I want the rights back. Hey, I want the rights back. Hey, I want the rights back. And um, Llewellyn, to their credit, was really pretty good about this. I think most of the people that wanted the rights got their rights back, and, and they, they reverted a bunch of titles to authors who didn't even need to ask. Um, so when that happens, your odds of actually being able to republish it with another publisher are not large, um, because it's already got a publication history, unless it was a really huge hit, um, you know, another publisher is not going to want to, to take a bite out of the same apple, basically. So what I decided to do um, was my, my um, literary agency, Curtis Brown, has a co-publishing program. You know, mm-hmm. it's sort of a hybrid self-publishing kind of a deal. And um, for projects by their, their authors that, you know, don't necessarily fit with a traditional publisher or in my situation that don't really have a home to go to. And you know, I could have done the whole thing myself, but I just, there's a lot to self-publishing. It's not just a simple press and play, and I didn't <laughs> really do that. So I, I decided for this one, and also my agent um, is really wonderful. Uh, you know, we've been together for a long time, and and I kind of felt like you know, if there's any money to be made on this book, and who knows if there is, I, I didn't mind sharing some of it with her and with them because they've worked really hard for me and I haven't necessarily made them a ton of dough. So, um, and the cover was just, uh, I'm really happy about that. It was one of it's the- It's gorgeous. Isn't it, isn't it stunning? Yeah. Well, it's the same designer that did the Midnight Ink cover. Um, the, and, and this was one of the concepts and it was always my favorite. I know why they went with the one they went with. It's a little bit more commercial, I think, a little bit more thriller. And but this one to me really captures the feeling of the story and what it is. Um, so I, it was like, oh, you know, if I'm going to publish this myself, I wonder if I could get. <laughs> so I went to the artist and we went to the publisher and, and we got permission to use this design and I could not be happier with it. So I guess the, the bottom line is being proactive, staying in touch with your agent, staying in touch with your publisher and just kind of keeping abreast of everything that's happening. Um, you know, so many times I've heard authors just being like, all right, it's out there, it's done. Yeah. And then, you know, getting caught off guard by these sort of things. And um, one of the things I, I try to impress upon as many up and coming authors as possible is, you know, don't, if you want this to be a hobby, sure. Like, yeah. you know, 
if you're just writing for yourself, you know, that's fine. That's totally fine. There's nothing wrong. There's no shame in that. If you're looking to get this book out there, to make it known, to get your name out there, you know, think of this as a small business and, and really invest time and do your research into the publishing company you're involved with, into the agency that's representing you. Um, And, you know, I'm, I'm an indie publisher, but even with indie, you know, it's the same thing. You know, you could just do the push and go, push the button and go, but there's so much more to it. And, you know, like I said, treat it like a small business and know the ins and outs so that you can be successful. And so you can take the reins when something like this happens and run with it successfully. And it changes. I mean, you know, indie publishing is, is not for the faint hearted, or at least it shouldn't be. I mean, there's, you know, the, I have only kept abreast of it enough to know what I would need to know if I were going to do it. It, it, it's a complicated area and you know, how do you market it and all of that. So yeah, at this point I did just throw up my hands and go, nah, I don't want to do any of that. You do it, please. <laughs> so those were some fantastic insights into the publishing business and the publishing world and how sometimes things happen that we don't expect. So to always be up to date or to stay up to date with the publishing industry and to learn what you can so that you are armed with knowledge as you go. Our last interview here today is, or our last segment here today, is with the owner of SNS Publishing and Off-Road Magazine, Sherry Kukla. Sherry and I talked about the importance of critique groups and finding the right critiquers for your specific project. Now, you mentioned about how sometimes we're going to encounter people who um, discourage our dreams or who laugh at us. And I wanted to talk to you a bit more about a critique experience that you had. And I understand that you had one of those not so great experiences with critiquing. You wanna talk a bit bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, I would like to say first, um, besides this bad experience, it was the first bad experience I had had with critiquing. Uh, when I lived in the city, uh, for many years, I was a part of the San Diego Christian Writers Guild and we would meet monthly. I mean, I'm talking, I think in the seventies and eighties, I was doing this. I would meet monthly with a group of, um, many of them were already professional writers, and we would critique each other's work. And I know one of the key things I learned there was never to defend my work when it's being critiqued, but to listen. And I got a lot of really good and valuable advice, and I never left there feeling discouraged or feeling like, well, I'm really not measuring up as a writer. I felt encouraged. Um, but I had a situation when we moved to the desert 16 years ago, and that's when I had came, come up with the idea for the skeleton and the lantern. And I started working on it. I didn't have any kids in the home at that time. Um, my granddaughter lives with us now, and she's a great um, live-in um, encourager and you know, giving me her, her input from a child's point of view. But at the time, she wasn't even born, and I started working on it. I would live too far away to go physically take part in a critique group, so I was searching online. And I found an online critique group, and I got uh, matched up with the lady, and I sent her the, I think I had three or four chapters written. And the response she gave me, I don't remember it being encouraging at all. I don't remember specifically what she said. I just know I put the manuscript away and decided, I guess this is the project for me. 
And, but it wouldn't go away. It stayed in my mind all those years, that idea. And so about a year and a half ago, I just made it my New Year's goal that I'm going to pull that manuscript out and I'm going to finish it. When I started it and I, I gave the first few chapters then to my granddaughter, and at the time I just had one main character, it was a boy, and she read it, she read the first few chapters, she liked the storyline, she liked the writing, I don't even remember what she said. She wanted more. And, and then I, I said to her, what if I add a second character, if I add a sister, and then we can change point of view from chapter to chapter, because I had seen that done in some other, you know, manuscripts for this age. And she liked that idea. And so I, so along came Millie. And it's funny because Millie has been some of the reader's favorite characters. And Millie didn't even exist in the beginning. <laughs> So the difference between my granddaughter's input, and she didn't read it and say, this is perfect, don't do anything. She, um, in fact, one of the, the key things she told me, I was long about, oh, probably 60 or 70 pages into my manuscript, and she said, when are we going to see the skeleton? You keep talking about this skeleton and we haven't seen it yet. So then I said, okay, let me go back and bring the skeleton in a little sooner than I planned on bringing the skeleton in. And, and she was encouraging about it. So when we are critiquing people, there's definitely a way to do it that's encouraging and there's a way to do it that's negative and makes someone feel like you're not cut out to be a writer. What do you think you're doing? So. Yeah, I think that's phenomenal um, advice. And you said some really great things in there about when you're putting your work out there to be critiqued, the important part is to listen. And, you know, it's so easy for us to put up our walls, be like, no, it's perfect. I work so hard on this. And even if you don't think it's perfect, just the, you know, you pour your heart and soul into your writing. And so it's easy to, to put up those walls. Um, but, you know, when you're, when you're putting your work forward, you want to have that open mind and open eyes and open heart, because the people who are critiquing you are generally trying to help and offer advice. And of course, you can always take or leave the advice. Um, but it's also important, as you said, to find, or as you were sort of been indicating, finding the right critiquer for the project. And, you know, I'm a huge believer in, if you're writing a children's book, take it to a child, take it to that age group, because you're there, your audience. You can get the, the thumbs up from the child or those wonderful suggestions, you know, that's going to help to carry your story on and into the next level. Yes, I agree. And I know one of the things that they had explained to me when I was new in this group um, is that one of the reasons we don't want to respond is if we have to explain our work, then it didn't, it didn't explain itself in the writing. And like they told me, you're not going to be sitting next to every reader being able to explain to them, well, what you really meant by this passage. And so I think a lot of times, too, we know our own work so well, we know what we mean, and it is good to get another input because if the other people don't understand, then, then we know we didn't explain it correctly. And so that's just a couple pieces of some really great advice some, from some wonderful authors. And I hope that these help you on your writing journey. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'll be doing another one just like it next week. So be sure to like this podcast and subscribe so you'll be in the know when the next episode drops. For more on the authors highlighted, check out the description box, which has all the links to their activities. And of course, may this new year shine nothing but light, 
creativity, and joy your way. A huge thank you goes to my sponsors, Sal Bomb and Don W. And to see how you can help support this podcast, head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash sfaxon. Thank you, as always, for listening, for following, and until next time, cheers, dears.